You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 10, Disposable Heroes. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And thank you so much to Casper B for signing up already. Also, you can help others find this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. Last episode, we covered the tumultuous reign of Al-Hakam I, and we touched upon some of the major revolts he faced. This episode we will dive into the reign of his son and successor, Abdalahman II, who faced many of the same challenges. We will also take a look at a bizarre movement led by a priest by the name of Eulogius that gave birth to an incident known as the Martyrs of Córdoba. Abdalahman II, son of Al-Hakam I, ascended to the throne of Al-Andalus in 822 at the age of 30, and he was already an experienced military and political leader, having led multiple expeditions to the northern frontiers. He is described as tall, slightly stooping, intelligent, with large dark eyes, and a full henna-dyed beard. From the very get-go, it seems that Abdalahman had been giving a lot of thought as to how he would rule when his turn came up. He was determined to avoid at least one of the issues his father just didn't seem to care much about, which was the appeasement of the conservative religious element in his kingdom at large, but in Córdoba in particular. If you recall last episode, 
I mentioned that Al-Hakam was accused of instituting un-Islamic taxes. And in the direct source reading I did for you guys, it mentioned that many Islamic scholars and jurists were part of the plot to overthrow him. These factors seem to indicate a broad religious discontent with the rule of Al-Hakam. A discontent that his son was determined to convert into support for his own reign. In a clear sign of the changes to come, when his father laid on his deathbed, Abdullahman ordered the execution of Al-Hakam's Christian bodyguard commander, along with the destruction of the wine market of Cordoba. The fact that there even was a wine market in the capital city of all places should tell you just how relaxed Al-Hakam had been when it came to enforcing certain aspects of religious law. Abdullahman also reignited the flames of jihad with several planned campaigns against their enemies in the northern frontier, along with a new and far-reaching program of mosque building throughout the kingdom. He has also been credited with overseeing the maturing of the emirate administration by expanding its formality and bureaucratic structures. See, a common tactic employed by monarchs to increase their aura of majesty and authority was to elevate themselves above everyone else by making themselves as physically inaccessible as possible. In order to be granted an audience with the monarch, Petitioners would have to go through a myriad of officials, waiting rooms, court members, more waiting rooms, and secretaries. And even then, an audience with the monarch was not guaranteed. By creating a distance between the ruler and just about everyone else, it imparted a sense of awe and importance to the ruler once one was finally allowed an audience. Along with the increased formality of the court, the emir expanded the bureaucratic structures of the kingdom by employing a prime minister that would hold his own court at the palace to receive petitioners. Below him were an array of civil servants that fulfilled all kinds of roles, from governing cities to leading military expeditions. He also set up an administrative office to collect taxes, mint coins, and a royal embroidery to produce textiles for official use which were typically adorned with Arabic inscriptions. The emir has been characterized as one of the most intellectual of the Umayyad rulers of Al-Andalus. He patronized scholars, poets, scientists, and architects. He expanded the great mosque of Cordoba and the mosque at Seville, fragments of which can still be found in the court of the church of San Salvador. But just because the emir was a proactive and able administrator did not mean that all was well within the kingdom. Surprising exactly no one, the emir had to deal with, you guessed it, several revolts during his reign. In the region of Tudmir in the east of Iberia, a mini-civil war broke out between two major Arab factions over land claims. That event lasted seven years and caused over 3,000 deaths. The violence only ending when one of the faction leaders surrendered to the emir in exchange for a position in the Umayyad military. 
The Emir then took a couple of actions in an attempt to prevent this type of violence from happening again by taking hostages from the families of the major players of this war to ensure their good behavior. He then moved the major administrative center of the region to the city of Murcia and assigned a garrison to the city. In 828, yet another revolt broke out in Merida, in which the emir's governor was killed. Abdallahman reacted swiftly but more diplomatically than his father would have by taking hostages and destroying some of the city's defenses. And the city of Merida rewarded the emir for his restraint by, of course, rebelling immediately after he left for Cordoba. The new governor was imprisoned and the city's defenses were repaired. In 831, the emir was forced to save the life of the governor by releasing the hostages after a failed attempt to besiege the city into surrender. The following year, another siege was attempted that ended in failure, and it was only in 834 that Merida once again submitted to Umayyad rule. The rebel leaders were exiled from the city as part of the terms of surrender, but one of them, Mahmoud, whom we talked about in episode 8, renewed his defiance and set himself up as an independent warlord in the city of Badajoz, until he was finally defeated and ejected by the emir. And even then, he was able to rout two Umayyad detachments sent in pursuit as he escaped into the kingdom of the Asturias, where he was welcomed by Alfonso II, who set him up in a frontier fortress in Galicia to defend against Umayyad incursions. Mahmoud's sister even married a Christian noble and converted to Christianity. But, as we know from episode 8, Mahmoud then allegedly rebelled against Alfonso II and was promptly defeated and killed. Though of course we don't have the kind of details we'd like to have, particularly about the political, ethnic, and religious divisions of the city, this incident does shine a dim light on the situation in Al-Andalus. It reveals that a leading faction in a city like Merida could shrug off central authority with relative impunity. Mahmoud's career is particularly revealing as despite his expulsion from Merida, his local influence was so great that he was able to establish a new base and then put up an effective military resistance to the emir. There are no details as to how large the number of his supporters were, but clearly there were enough of them to make Mahmoud a powerful warlord. It's also worth noting that he and his followers were willing and able to operate on both sides of the frontier between Al-Andalus and the Asturias and were of sufficient value for the rulers of both kingdoms to compete for their allegiance, once again demonstrating the very fluid and flexible nature of alliances in this period. In another move to thwart future rebellions, it's recorded that in 835, the emir ordered the Roman walls that encircled the city of Merida to be destroyed, 
Archaeological digs have revealed sections of the old wall with regular gaps knocked down to ground level, leaving it defenseless against a siege. This new vulnerability reduced the level of insurrection in the city, but may have also triggered the economic and political decline that seems to have gripped it in the ensuing decades, as its prominence gave way to that of the city of Badajoz. While Abdallahman was focused on dealing with Merida, a man by the name of Hashim al-Darab, who was one of the leaders that had been previously expelled from Toledo after the Day of the Ditch in the previous reign, escaped from his exile in Córdoba and successfully re-established himself in Toledo. This event is further evidence as to how deep local power ran in these cities as his return after nearly 15 years in exile triggered a new rejection of Umayyad authority. As I mentioned last episode, the massacre of the Day of the Ditch was only a temporary solution, which left Toledo subdued and angry, but not subjugated. And Hashim was eager to get some payback for that massacre, launching attacks on the Berber garrisons of Santanver and Talvera. The Toledans also took control of Calatrava la Vieja, the most important fortress town between their valley and that of the Guadalquivir. And they managed to hold on to that fortress for about three or four years, until they were driven out in 834. Although Hashim himself was killed in 831, in a battle with an army sent by the emir to retake the city, Toledo continued to hold out being unsuccessfully besieged by the Berbers from Calatrava in 835 and in 836. Losing patience with the situation, the emir sent his brother, Al-Walid, in June of 837 to finally bring the city to its knees. Al-Walid was successful in his mission, and the city was recaptured, and Al-Walid became its governor. He is also said to have rebuilt the fortress inside the city that had been demolished by his father, Al-Hakam I. The point of which was to provide a safe haven for the governor and other Umayyad loyalists in the event of another revolt, which of course was very likely to occur. Now, in episode 4, I mentioned that during the original conquest, some of the lords of the Ebro Valley were allowed to keep their lands and titles, and subsequently converted to Islam. These same families would only grow in power and prestige, as they provided the bulwark of defense against Christian incursions, namely from the Asturians, the Basques, and the Franks. One of these families in particular grew to be the most powerful of these lords, known as the Benukasi. And indeed, they were so influential that in fact, if not in name, they ran a quasi-independent state from that of the Umayyads. In 842, the emir launched an expedition to the northeast, with the intent to cross the Pyrenees to raid Frankish territory around the city of Narbonne, since at this time, the Frankish Empire was distracted 
by the civil war that was raging between the surviving sons of the previous Frankish king. However, clashes between the commander appointed by the emir and Musa bin Musa of the Benukasi, who was appointed to lead the vanguard, led instead to a collapse of the expedition and the rejection of Umayyad authority by the Benukasi. In response, in 843, Abdullah dispatched one of his generals, Al-Harit, to go deal with Musa bin Musa. A battle took place around the city of Borja, which was held by one of Musa's sons, who was captured and executed by Al-Harit. When Musa himself was besieged at Arnedo, he entered into an open alliance with a certain Garcia, the ruler of the small Christian kingdom of Pamplona, and the two of them defeated and captured Al-Harit. Reeling from this humiliation, in 844, the emir sent a much larger army led by his son Muhammad. Musa then reluctantly submitted and handed over one of his sons as a hostage. But his power was so indispensable to the Umayyads that he was promptly reinstated to the town of Tudela. Benukasi dominance in this important frontier area made them, for now at least, irreplaceable. The usual solutions that the emirs applied elsewhere to curb local power simply could not be applied in the northeast. The proximity of both Pamplona and the Catalan-Frankish territories made the dismantling of the fortifications of the region simply inconceivable. The emirs were therefore forced to rely most of the time on the strength of local dynastic warlords such as the Benukasi, both to defend the territory from Christian raids and to maintain order in the name of the emir. Consequently, dealing with the Benukasi was a very different proposition from dealing with the prominent families and factions of other major cities. In that same year, we come across an interesting but confusingly documented event namely, the Viking attack on Seville. The details for this attack are given to us by a number of sources from differing time periods. And, as per usual, they disagree and contradict each other in many details. So, the version I'm about to tell you is simply that, a version of the story. It goes as follows. In the summer of 844, 80 Viking ships were driven away from Lisbon by the local governor. They headed south down the coast and sailed up the Guadalquivir River, establishing a base south of Seville in a place called Isla Menor. Soon after, they attacked, looted, and pillaged the unwalled city of Seville. But once they realized that the Guadalquivir was not navigable any further, they began to attack the surrounding countryside. Abdullahman had been warned by the governor of Lisbon of this threat, and, acting swiftly, he ordered a mustering of troops from all areas, 
and even the intractable Musa bin Musa of the Benukasi joined the Emir, leading his own troops from the Ebro. The Umayyad armies decisively defeated the Scandinavians in a land battle. Many were killed, but most of the rest returned to their ships and fled. Allegedly, some of the Vikings stayed and settled south of Seville, where they converted to Islam and lived reformed lives, selling cheeses to the people of Seville. This will not be the last time that the Iberian Peninsula will be attacked by the Scandinavian pirates slash raiders slash slavers that we call the Vikings. Now, none of our sources use the term Viking when referring to these guys. Our Muslim sources refer to them as Majus, which originally meant fire-worshipper, a term the Arabs used for the Persian Zoroastrians, since they used fire in their rituals. But it's thought that by this time, the word Majus was basically used in the same way that we use the word pagan today. The Christian sources in Iberia simply refer to them as Northmen. The word Viking is derived from the Old Norse word Vikinger, which simply means pirate. And so, when the Scandinavians went out raiding, they would call it to go out a Viking. But we have to be cognizant of all the romanticized imagery that TV and movies have propagated about these people. These were not noble warriors. These were opportunistic pirates that attacked the most vulnerable, undefended communities they ran across to murder, steal, rape, and enslave. Not that they were much worse than any other armed group at this time. It's just that the romanticized imagery from popular media we are saddled with in our time is inaccurate at best and outright harmful to our understanding of these people at worst. There was a peculiar chapter that unfolded during the reign of Abdalahman that gives us a fascinating glimpse into a social undercurrent that was taking place. This was a series of Christian quote-unquote martyrdoms that took place in the capital. At this time, in daily life, Christian practices were allowed a wide degree of tolerance. Public and in-your-face displays of faith like processions and the ringing of bells were discouraged, particularly in the capital, but neither churches nor monasteries were really directly threatened. There were, however, two practices which Islam just could not tolerate. One was apostasy, which is the rejection of a religious belief. Because once you converted to Islam, there was no going back. That was punishable by death in Islamic law. And the other was to publicly insult the Prophet. So, beginning in 850, a small group in Cordoba, led by a priest named Eulogius, openly defied these prohibitions by insulting the Prophet in public and even in the great mosque and those who had previously converted to Islam by publicly rejecting it and returning to Christianity. They refused every opportunity given to them to avoid execution by repenting. Both the Muslim authorities and the church leaders 
tried to reason with these zealots and calm things down, but it was all in vain. From 850 onwards, about 13 people were executed after formal trials. After the death of Abdullahman in 852, Eulogius left for the north and the martyrdom ceased for a while. But when he returned in 853, they resumed. And between then and March of 859, there were at least 14 more executions. Finally, Eulogius himself was tried and decapitated, and this seems to have ended the whole affair. It's estimated that between 850 and 859, nearly 50 Christians were executed in Córdoba. This whole affair begs for further examination to attempt to understand the motivations of the quote-unquote martyrs. But in order to do this, we need to take a look at some of the context at play here. You see, early church histories are filled with tales of persecuted Christians dying for their faith at the hands of the Romans. These deaths were lauded as the ultimate show of faith. Now, modern historical scholarship is pretty much in agreement that, to a large degree, the stories of Christian persecution in the Roman Empire are exaggerated or just outright fabrications. That's not to say that the Romans didn't kill Christians. They certainly did. Just not necessarily in the numbers claimed or in such spectacular fashion as in the arena. Putting that aside, the Christians were steeped in these accounts. So you can see how this would be an influencing factor in all of this. But it wasn't the only thing driving people to do this. A new social group was in the process of developing at this time in Al-Andalus, known as the Mozarabs, which were basically Arabized Christians. They spoke Arabic and usually dressed like Arabs, and adopted a lot of the Islamic cultural trappings that surrounded them. And this is not unusual. Typically after conquest, the subjugated peoples tend to slowly adopt the culture of the dominant social group. Which makes sense. For example, if you had any kind of ambition of climbing the social ladder and you were a Christian, well, your options were very limited. But conversion to Islam would open up a number of social and career doors. Not only that, but we can't underestimate the power of cool. At this time, what was cool or fashionable was defined by the upper aristocracy. So, if you want to look cool and be cool, you're probably going to adopt at least some Arab fashion. Now, repeat this process for two or three generations, and what you get are natives that are religiously Christian, but culturally Arab. And this created all kinds of issues that we will undoubtedly cover more extensively on a later episode. For this affair in particular, it seems like there are two issues in play. The first being the social change we just discussed. Christian life was under stress, with increasing conversions to Islam, frequent intermarriage between Christians and Muslims, and the rapid assimilation of Arabic and Islamic culture. 
as exemplified by the fact that many of the martyrs came from mixed families, with both Christian and Muslim relatives. To an extent, they were protesting against the Arabization of the Christian community in Cordoba and its drift towards Islam by clearly asserting uncompromising Christian values. But the second issue in play seems to have been the cult of self-sacrifice and martyrdom which developed around Eulogius. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, Eulogius strikes me more as a cult leader than a priest. I'd like to wrap up today's episode with a short reading from a direct source of the time. We have some writings by a man named Paul Alvarus, who was a friend and admirer of Eulogius. He wrote a treatise called Indiculus Luminosus, where he complains about how the Christian youth had adopted Arab culture. The following is a passage from that work. Quote, what trained person, I ask, can be found today among our laity, who, with a knowledge of Holy Scripture, looks into the Latin volumes of any of the doctors? Who is there on fire with evangelical love, with the love like that of the prophets, like that of the apostles? Do not all the Christian youths, handsome in appearance, fluent of tongue, conspicuous in their dress and action, distinguished for their knowledge of Arab lore, highly regarded for their ability to speak Arabic, do they not all eagerly use the volumes of the Arabs, read them with the greatest interest, discuss them ardently, and, collecting them with great trouble, make known with every praise of their tongue, all the while they are ignorant of the beauty of the church and look with disgust upon the church's rivers of paradise as something vile. Alas, Christians do not know their own law, and Latins do not use their own tongue, so that in all the college of Christ there will hardly be found one man in a thousand who can send correct letters of greetings to a brother." End quote. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.